Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, and I'm here with the three usuals, like always, Brian Park, number one boss. Brian, how's it going today? Real good. Good, good. Brian, do you have a favorite bike shop where you live in the city? I do. Yeah, Atomic Bike Shop. Steve Sutherland. He's rad. We're going to get to why in today's podcast, why that's your favorite bike shop. Uh, first, let's introduce everybody else. Here, as always, representing the queen, we got Jimmy. Jimmy Smurthwaite. <laughs> James, how's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. I would say uh, Brixton Bikes for mine. Okay, Brixton Bikes. And Casimir. Casimir, how are you? I'm doing great. Great. You got a favorite shop? Yeah, my favorite shop would be Alley Cat Bikes. Alley Cat Bikes, yeah, okay. Yeah. That sounds very hip. It does. Uh, it's not like a hipster shop, though. Not at all. No. It's more like a girl. Alley Cat Bikes. Well, it's kind of like in an alley. You guys can't see Casimir right now, but he has a really nice curly mustache and a five-panel hat. <laughs> yeah. It really suits him. Uh-huh. That'd be great. I'm a wax so, on my mustache. <laughs> today's podcast is all about bike shops, the future of bike shops. Do they need to exist, especially with this online retail stuff that's happening, everything else. But first, we're going to get into the news. And as always, Jimmy's going to take it away. Jimmy? Uh, thanks, Mike. Yeah, I guess the big news um, literally this week is uh, SRAM's updated Eagle drivetrains. So the headline here is that Eagle Extender 52-tooth cog, which increases the range of the group set by 20 percentage points and is one bigger than Shimano's biggest cog. Can I stop you right there? It's not actually 20%. <laughs> ah, well, that's why I said 20 percentage points, Mike. Yes, okay. <laughs> Math is definitely the strong suit here. Yeah. So there's also some updates to the derailleur and GX also has a carbon crank option as well. I thought it was really cool that SRAM sort of showcased GX here. After all, you know, we're not all riding the XX1, XO1 stuff. Levy, you've had this group set. Have you got any initial ride impressions? Yeah, I've had it for a few weeks now. I don't have the carbon cranks. I have the aluminum cranks. Uh, First impression is the group visually, it looks much nicer, especially the aluminum cranks. They have a darker finish to them. Everything just looks higher end. It's still early days. I've ridden it a bunch. Shifting feels, it feels very SRAMy. It feels good. I think a lot of people want to know about that jump up to the 52. I've used it with both an Axis derailleur and a normal GX derailleur. The GX derailleur is designed to handle that. With Axis, there's literally zero difference in shifting between a 50 and a 52 tooth. It's really impressive. Uh, The GX, yeah, it's a little bit slower, noticeable, but Way better than shifting from just a few years ago, even. So, yeah, I'm impressed. And what do you think about the going up to 52 teeth? I mean, this is a horse I've I've beat to death a lot. It's not all about having the easiest gear. And this isn't all about having the easiest gear either. Obviously, your range is wider, so you use your chainring and you put a bigger chainring on there. If you want, you figure out the gearing that you need. When you shift up to that 52, if you're moving, you basically go from like, you know, five kilometers an hour to half a kilometer an hour. It's for climbing straight up the things. Yeah, I don't think they would have made this if there wasn't a demand. I even asked them that ride with the guys, the, some of the people from SRAM, just, you know, did they just do this just to kind of spite Shimano and give them the one, one tooth uh, more than that? But there was actual demand that people wanted to have a, a bigger gear range. So yeah, now and it's they, they were planning this for a while. I mean, some of that original Eagle stuff had bigger than 50 tooth cogs, and but they ended up starting with a 50 originally. And yeah, now we have that 52. What do you guys think that this means industry-wise? You know, we had many years of SRAM dominance on mid-level uh, spec. And then in the last couple of years, Shimano's come back pretty hard. Is this a, is this a jump back, a, a clap back for SRAM? Is it 
Yeah, where's it going to shake out? This time next year, what are we seeing on bikes? I think we see more of an even mix just now that Shimano has more, uh, they have their lower price points available, but I don't think this is like a drastic, huge upheaval of the drivetrain world. It's just a different cassette option, basically, and some refinements to their derailleur. I think it'll take something bigger than this to really, to be a big shakeup. Which Top is some, the balance? Like some GX yeah. axis. Uh, that's I, I, would, I don't think it that's what me. I would, I don't think that would be what would upset it, but I think there's other things probably in the works. I, I feel like GX axis would, would upset the balance. Once, once SRAM, you know, they're, they're obviously investing heavily in wireless electronic stuff. Once they can tie that whole ecosystem together, that will be a dramatic change for sure. Yeah. And for the record, we don't know anything about a GX axis drivetrain. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. We're just speculating. It's a lot of investment to get that access stuff going. And they're obviously not just going to have, you know, one drivetrain. So. Hey guys, do you think that when new XTR comes out, the new XT that comes out the following year will have similar technologies? Just, oh, just asking. Weird. <laughs> Weird that. Just let me look at my crystal ball. <laughs> oh God, you guys are just so good at predicting things. So where's the, uh, the XT DI2? Have you seen that? Uh, well, they Speaking did make things the XT DI2 out. and then it all went away. They stopped yeah. focusing on that, which is good. But they did make XTDI too. That's true. I forgot about it. That's how memorable it was. <laughs> I even wrote it and reviewed it. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys had to guess, we're getting a little off topic here. But you know, three years from now, what what's Shimano going to do? Are they going to have to do a wireless drivetrain, or are we going to see a new wired electronic drivetrain? What do you guys? What would you guess? I bet they'll go wireless, but I feel like the shape of derailers and everything is going to change a bit. Mm, me too. Yeah. All gearboxes. Three years from now. All right, Jimmy, let's get back to the news. Um, let's talk about the new common cell then. One of the advantages of, of only building aluminium bikes is that you can update them super quickly. Uh, and that's what common cell have done. So we tested the Meta TR at the field trip in Sedona and already there's a new version. Um, we called that one a, a trail smasher. Uh, and this one looks even smashier. It's slacker, long fork, and alongside that, the steeper seat tube angle, putting it on the more progressive end um, of the geometry spectrum. Kaz, you filmed a video after one ride. Um, have you had any more time to get to grips with it now? Uh, yeah, I have two more rides on it since then, so still not a ton of time on it. And one of those rides is pretty short. But yeah, it's it's a fun bike for where I live, for around here. Levy, has, he wants to say things so badly. <laughs> He's biting his tongue. Um yeah, it is more, like you said, more smashy than the previous version. And the previous version wasn't a slouch. Like that one felt just like a stout tank. This is even more in that, kind of that category. Um, for where I live, I think it's good, but other places might be too much. Levy, say your words. <laughs> Does TR stand for trail? Is that I don't think there? it can stand for trail anymore. So I don't know. We That's make what it, I was going to say. It has yeah. a 60 millimeter <laughs> fork yeah. a 64 and a half degree head angle. Yeah, maybe it stands for like... I mean, you still ride them on trails technically. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And I don't know, Levy, isn't it you who was literally just telling us about how pole, the pole geometry changed your mind on all these things and what's good for the goose is good for the gander on trail bikes and stuff too? Yeah. What is it about common saw that, that all of a sudden makes you question this, <laughs> this backtrack? It isn't the geometry. It's just a, a trail a trail bikes don't have 160 millimeter travel forks and i know that people get super annoyed when we try to like classify things and stuff like that but we kind of like it makes it's important to do that stuff because it lets you compare the bikes uh properly and 
trail bikes don't have 160 millimeter travel forks. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a trail bike. And it's funny because Common Salt did have the words mini enduro somewhere in their in their press copy. And yeah. I use that, obviously. And then there's people that think that we came up with that and they're mad, which is great. Mini enduro. It's the new <laughs> yeah. mini DH. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I think this is just an enduro bike. Like it feels like you could definitely race it. It's got a float X2 shock. Like I would happily roll up to any race and yeah. be fine. So Casimir, we rode the previous version in Sedona. Mm-hmm. I think you have the, the the new one that you have has probably got baller stuff on. It's probably a higher end spec, I think. But yeah. can you compare the two geometry wise and how they feel on the trail? Like is is the new one, is it going to let me go faster and do bigger things? It will. Yeah. I mean, plus you do have 10 millimeters more travel. So they bumped up the travel in the rear um, and the front as well. So you, you do like the last one might you go fast, but you kind of felt not harsh, but you kind of knew there were some limits. This one, you can definitely go even faster and it is longer by a significant amount um it does change how it rides yeah i think this one would if you went and did some timed laps on the old one versus this one i think this one would be faster um descending it, laps here okay descending laps yeah one last question and climbing before we move same. on one last question you're going for a trail bike ride in sedona it's rolling terrain do you want the new one with 160 or do you want the older one with less travel i'd probably just take the new one because it weighs the same it's like they're both of them are kind of their own thing I would just take this one to have it, but yeah, it is kind of heavy too. I didn't mention that, but it's like 34 pounds. They get a, Cominsaw gets a free pass with that stuff. You know, they're aluminum. People are just like, oh, whatever. Yeah, but it is heavy because that's with light tires, those dissector tires front and rear. They're only like 900 grams. So if you put real tires on it, it gets like 35 pounds, I think. So it's rideable. I mean, you know, some people care about weight more than others, but if you do care a lot, it's on the heavier side. Do you think that they get a free pass or do you think that it's just the the segment of the, the market yeah. that's buying those isn't as concerned with it? Yeah, so they're that's, catering that's, to yeah, people that yeah. they that they're right. trying to cater with. So And if you owned one, you're not gonna tell people that it matters. Like your bike that you have <laughs> is the best bike ever. So you're not gonna say I'm I care, you know. Confirmation but, bias for sure. Yeah. But I do think it's a cool little bike. I'm excited to ride it more. It's felt great so far. So around, you know, if you do have I don't know, it's gonna be good, I think. We'll see. Uh, another bike that underwent some pretty significant changes uh, was the Mojo 4. Um, so we tested the Mojo 5 in the field test last year, and this is kind of followed suit with a kind of a, a longer, lower slacker build. This time it's a two degree slacker head angle. Reach increased 40 millimeters on a medium. Um, what did you guys think when you saw that? I think it made me realize how much geometry has changed in the last few years because this bike, this one was, I'd say was overdue for an update. It was like four years, I think, since the last one. So when you're changing reach by 40 millimeters, that's a pretty huge change. And it kind of shows what we've... Our it's like current two normal. sizes. It's like, yeah. yeah. It's big. So our current normal is pretty big compared to just you know, four years ago. So. Ibis is also, relatively speaking, they're pretty conservative sometimes with their geo and they've been conservative with their changes. Like they, they debut a new bike and it's, you know, it might be slightly steeper than some of the competition, maybe slightly shorter, that kind of thing. And that's, I'm not saying that makes them worse. That can make them better in a lot of places. But yeah, I think you're seeing that huge change here because this bike is definitely do for an update yeah how does it how do these numbers compare to other bikes in the category casmer they're fairly close you know you're looking at like around that 65 degree head angle this is 65.4 so in this this genre we'll call it like the 130 to 140 trail bike category they're they're pretty on target there i'd say it's got little wheels so oh what's interesting what do you think drove that choice uh they just updated the bike that was already in their line 
like they're just like this is what's next is what we do i think we're going to see that from some other companies really soon like by the time you're listening to this the new uh 5010 will have come out the santa cruz 5010 and that is also small wheels 130 mils of travel kind of similar geometry to this so just like it's a category of bike i'm not sure it's kind of your it's like your everybody bike you know Hasmer, would you buy a 27.5 millimeter trail bike right now no, Wait, I wouldn't. I'm also 5'11". Casimir, would you buy a 27.5 wheeled bike? No, I wouldn't. Uh, just based on my height and my kind of riding style. Like it doesn't, it just, I've been, I rode that 5010. We'll talk about this more in the next podcast, but you're riding the 5010, it's fine. It feels like a Santa Cruz, but I've also ridden the high tower, which just feels like a 5010, but better. So yeah. um, for me, but somebody, it's going to be a great bike. Like it's, there's nothing wrong with it. Every time I watch a, a 50 to 1 video, I'm like, oh, I should get a little wheel bike. And then I remember that everything hurts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember I, to, I can't do any of that. <laughs> right. Like I can't, still can't foot plant or like ride backwards on it. So I don't know. I must have not found the right button. <laughs> Either way, we are seeing like a little resurgence in these, you know, this year seems like the, the year that some of these shorter travel 27.5 bikes are getting updated. Just it's kind of their time. So it's cool. Yeah. It's nice to have little fun poppy things, even if it's not for me. Totally. Yeah. Someone will love this bike. Plus, you can get a frame bag for the Ibis that's called the Pork Chop. So, that. <laughs> um, something that stood out to me in, in Dan's uh, first look was that they specced uh, a float DPS uh, over the DPX2 um, for better water bottle fitment. Do you think that's a good trade-off? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't mind frames being designed to fit a water bottle, but I don't think you should spec a shock just because of water bottle clearance. That's do my you, personal opinion, though. Do you remember at Field Test, we had that mojo and it hit the bottle? It hit like a normal large size bottle, the the piggyback on it. Yeah, you had to run a certain cage that works better than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I yeah, I mean they there's no excuse, just like have both. Like give me the good shock and give me the giant water bottle. <laughs> I want yeah. it all. And that's a tricky I mean, part. Yeah. It's no that's Ibis, a reasonable thing to want now. It's, yeah. I agree. Yeah. And I think Ibis has kind of not painted themselves into a corner because they can easily just draw a door on the wall or however that analogy can get opened up but either way it's just this one they're kind of going off the old frame design it's had the same basic frame layout it's a really distinct look but it also makes space an issue so maybe the next version polarizing yeah not everyone likes it i love the way they look i know you guys don't i'm not a fan of this look but it's okay Anyways, uh, yeah. back to the news. <laughs> yeah. The last uh, new bike we saw this week was Specialized Updated Demo. So Lewick Bruni found great success this year on the mixed wheel setup, uh, and you can buy it now too. Um, and be just as fast. Yeah, I, I imagine. Exactly. So. Guaranteed. Yeah, I think that's how it works. <laughs> so there's a flip chip, so you can still go 27.5 front and rear, or you can keep it mullet as standard, or you can go 29.27.5. So no, 29.29, sorry. So with the status we saw teased earlier this year and now the demo, it looks like Specialized are kind of really going in on that um, that mullet configuration. Uh, what did you guys think of this one? I think that versatility is cool. I mean, with downhill bikes, it, they're probably, there's not a ton of people even racing or purchasing downhill bikes these days. So you might as well have one frame that can really accommodate a wide range of riders, personal preferences, that type of thing. And it makes sense that you know, you're an aspiring racer, you see Loic winning on a mullet bike, you probably want to try a mullet bike, like, even if it doesn't matter. So. Do you guys, do you think that this means we'll see a mixed stump jumper next? Uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting if we did. I wouldn't put it off the table, but I feel like, I mean, my gauge on demand for mullet bikes seems like there's not a huge demand. It just was based on a small sample size of the world I live in, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Levy, are you testing any mullet bikes right now? 
No, I'm only testing cross-country bikes right now. Definitely no mullet bikes. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty wet and slick and scary right now, so I would like to put a smaller wheel on the back. <laughs> Are there any 32-inch front wheel uh, bikes in your in your XC field test, Levy? No, no, we're not there yet. <laughs> I'm, a boy can dream, though. <laughs> Kaz, you reviewed the new uh, Vittoria Mazza tire. So this is a, a fresh addition to their lineup. It's definitely Minion-esque, but it comes with that that kind of graphene rubber compound. Um, how did you get on with it? Yeah, super neutral tire. I've got it, rode it in a pretty wide range of conditions, mostly towards the wetter side. And in the past, I've had some issues with Vittoria tires in the wet, but this one worked well. Um, and that mentioned the graphene rubber compound. Graphene is just like an additive that they put in with the rubber. Some scientist tried to call me out because I said some things that he doesn't think were right. I'm waiting for him to respond and tell me how I was wrong. <laughs> But it's more there. They do like a 4C compound, so there's four different durometers, and, and it was soft enough, and they do a lot of siping in the knobs, and I think that that's more to contribute to its uh, performance than anything. The siping helps it kind of stick to rocks and roots and things. Those sipes let those knobs flex. Yeah, exactly. So I, I haven't actually ridden the new Mazza yet, but I've been to Victoria's factories, and I've seen these crazy 4C machines that like the it's the size of like a school gymnasium these machines that put these tires together it's pretty neat how they do it i think they're the only company doing a four compound tire right now i think any yeah if you see any any tires that are four compound out there they're being made in victoria's factory yeah yeah and that i mean four compounds isn't necessarily better than three compounds but we sure like three compounds it's the 12 speed yeah 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 exactly one more yeah compound coming soon yeah how many rate how many blades does your razor have guys yeah (laughs) none mine has two i think i buy the really cheap ones those plastic ones like it's ten dollars for ten in the bag lasts me a year yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) no soap you just scrape the blade over your face yeah water uh-huh. <laughs> we got to get on the that razor company that does all the, all the podcast sponsorships. We'll get on that money. Dollar shave. Yeah, yeah dollar shave. Sponsors. Yeah. Either way, anyways, that tire, yeah, it's a good addition to our lineup. It kind of falls into that do it all realm. Would you take the perfect the perfect tread pattern with a crappy compound or the best compound with a crappy tread pattern? It's so hard. I don't know. I'm First really one. Yeah. Although I would take the crappy compound tire and I would cut the knobs to make it the way I wanted. <laughs> you mean the crappy tread pattern tire? That's what I mean. Crappy tread pattern, good. Because like sticky rubber is important. It's just like sticky rubber shoes for flat pedals. Like, but what if it was it like the... a really round profile? Round's good. Uh, Better than square. Like super round. You mean low knobs? Like yeah, super... everything, yeah. Everything bad. Yeah, I, I would definitely I'd take stop ride. I'd ride on my rims. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've been I've been using those Schwalbe XC tires and like you look at them and you compare them to the Mazza or Minion or whatever and they... They look quite scary, you know, really low knobs. Um, the 2.2 rear, 2.0. These are, sorry, these are control tires for the XC field. Yes, yeah, yeah. These are the Schwalbe Racing Ralph and Racing Ray tires. And I mean, really low, really low knobs, but that soft addicts compound, I've been impressed with them. Yeah, I think compound is much more important personally. So here's somebody that disagrees with you. Oh boy. Taj. <laughs> <laughs> what a legend. Yeah, quite a few bike checks on site this week. Uh, so Ethan Nell's single speed Chuez, um, Christina Chapetta's dream build session. But I think Taj just kind of takes the win there easily. I love how he's just got like a totally different way of, of like looking at things from his like BMX background. He's definitely tough on bikes as well when he talked about like breaking forks, bending cranks and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it works out. Pretty sick looking bike if you ask me. 
Did you guys see this little Instagram video of him riding that thing? Yeah, it's so good. Such like so style. Like, so much style. Like casual table. Yeah, it's like it's like he just tosses a nice little casual table. I think he just called it his dad lap or something or old guy lap or something. I want I want to have an old guy lap like that. No, if my old guy tables are like that. Like, Jeez. So yeah, Taj is awesome. And yeah, it's cool to see his bike just a little different. He runs a lot of air pressure, doesn't touch his fork because he's afraid of the rebound knob. But he still built his own wheels. Like he's a good v- very different needs than us. <laughs> yeah. He put in like an angle set to make it steeper. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's so and like who who's gonna tell Taji's wrong, right? Yeah, no, if it works no for way. him, that's yeah, like that guy can ride. Plus he had cool he had cool cartoons on his bike check. He had the the rabbit and the turtle on his rebound thing. Yeah. Somebody needs to put that on a fork for real. Yeah, they should. And someone called him out, they said, actually on the rock shocks, it's a jackalope, not a rabbit. So which is true, but I that still. He does look a lot more comfortable on this than he did on the fullies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, suspension in the back is tricky. It's not his thing. One last thing. Levy, you are field testing at the moment. Uh, how's that going? Uh, I'm cold and wet. I have mud under my eyelids from a ride I did four days ago. <laughs> it's going really well, though. <laughs> uh, you so know, we, have- we organize a field test in June. And then it just happens to rain for two weeks straight. It's yeah. Great. We yeah. forgot about the month of January. It's that yeah. well-known June. <laughs> now, it's going, it is going pretty well. We've got nine of these bikes. Uh, five of them are sort of downcountry-ish New School XC. Four of them are pure XC race bikes. Some of them I could talk about. Some of them I can't. Um, but it's been good. We picked a trail that is uh, definitely suitable for the bikes. It's like a mixed-use sort of XC-ish trail bike trail. But I tell you, it's been pretty damn slippery. Um, and I've been super impressed with these Schwalbe tires. They don't sponsor this thing. We just said, what kind of tires should we get? We wanted something light and racy to put on all the bikes to eliminate that variable. So we're not thinking about the tires. Uh, we're thinking about the suspension and the handling and thing like that. And these little tires have been, they've been very impressive. And yeah, so far the bikes have been pretty good too. Any surprises that you can talk about? Uh, no, actually (laughs) there, there are definitely some surprises to talk about. There's a few bikes in here that are blowing my mind. One that I rode today, but yeah, I can't quite talk about it yet. So everybody just wait embargoes, those pesky embargoes. (laughs) Yeah. Not a lot of travel, but a lot of capability. Okay. So next up, we're moving on to reader questions. Uh, the first one is from Liquidass, he says, uh, "Pink bike, what kind of cage and <laughs> bottle are you using?" <laughs> Deep questions from Liquidass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. I was just going to let it go. Like, <laughs> but you guys started laughing. Yeah. Come on, be more serious. Uh, who's Pink Bike? He just did he see one somewhere and he wants to know which one it is. That's what I would imagine. Yeah, I have I have no idea. He just wants to know in general. And I think this is actually a pretty good question timing wise because I've lost two bottles over the last two weeks falling out of bottle cages. And this is a problem I've never had in my life. All of a sudden these bottles are falling out. I don't know what's happening. Are you using your silly like 40 ounce bottles? They're the length of the frame. No, but one of them I did lose that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I like to be hydrated, Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, I like to fit my big gulp on my bike. Yeah, Levy uses water bottles that look like when you make like the wizard staff when you stack all your your beer cans together. <laughs> uh, do you guys have any bottle cage preferences? Uh, I, I use a fabric one, you know, with the little studs. Yeah, oh, I don't like that in. one. Oh, that one! Uh, I have no luck with that. Hard to get them 
Yeah, it's not okay. great to use on the fly, but I've had bottles flying off before, and this seems to hold them quite well. So, yeah, yeah it works. I just usually use like a decent side loading one. I'm left handed, mm-hmm. so it has to come from the left side. But like, I oh, think do you I have grab, a, grab with your dominant hand or your non dominant hand with your. My dominant hand. I grab left because my rear brake's on the right. Yeah. Also. yeah. So, and I don't want to yeah, panic, I, grab my front brake, and flip over the handlebars while I'm drinking. Again. True. Yeah. I'm the same, but opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I have an elite one and then a specialized one. Mm hmm. And then the bottles are, I have so many bottles just from free from over the years that I just yeah. use those. Well, which one do you like? I think, I think the question is what should they buy? Shout out Camelback podium bottle, that insulated thing, the massive one. No, yes. no, don't, no. <laughs> don't get fit that. any bike. It's like eight feet long. <laughs> That's why I complain about bottles not fitting bikes because I'm always trying to fit my giant yeah. one in there. I'm really not picky about water bottles. Like as long as the water comes out and it doesn't spill everywhere, then I don't care. And for bottle cages, the specialized side loading ones, like the gold standard. Yeah. 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 The the Camelback um, podium bottle used to be pretty frustrating because it had these little three little or four little nubbin holes, which is where the bottle was supposed or the cage was supposed to hold them, and you had to like line it up perfectly when you replaced your bottle in your cage. Um, but I see they've gone away from that design. They look more like a regular specialized purist bottle, which is the best bottle for oh, sure. Yeah, specialized okay. I changed my thing. That's the yeah. one. I, yeah, because everyone just uses that anyways. Yeah. That's the right bottle. If you're if you're gonna design a bottle, specialized purist. Those fabric ones are pretty good, but I think yeah, specialized purist. Just drink a lot of water before you go on a ride. Save weight. Don't bring That's a bottle. I do too. I only bring a little bottle because I drink water before. I don't need then, eighty ounces of water. Shout out to Mark. <laughs> hey, <Yeah>. Donnie. <laughs> oh yeah, this is a purist bottle. Look. Yeah. Yeah. I have one. Yeah. Okay, let's move on here. Enough water bottle talk. Race Facer says you have a time machine and a custom titanium frame builder who could get you the geometry and the handlebars you want. You could travel back in time to any scene with your frame and your handlebar, uh, but you must otherwise use correct period correct parts. What scene are you going back to? Clunking, 90s kamikaze, early 2000 peak XC with a 29er, early North Shore. I'm not going back to any time. All those times sucked. I'm staying. Uh, I go back to early North Shore. Early North Shore would be great. You could ride skinnies and just, I could be fine with the. Do you think you'd get sponsored? Do you think you you could go pro with the, with the future knowledge and frame geometry? Some of those drops that Wade hit were really flat. I don't know. Like even even with my new geometry. No, but you would gonna, know. You would know how transitions work and stuff. I could bring the transition to yeah. early, like teach exactly. them and be like, look, like if you shape this like this, yeah, I could talk to Dangerous Dan and, and yeah, I could change <laughs> hey, the world. What about not uphill? Have you ever considered <laughs> yeah. not? What about yeah. not a transition? <laughs> yeah, dangerous transition. Yeah, but I would still go to that scene because I like that time. In the Where world. would you go, James? Uh, good question. I'd like to, not riding, but I'd like to go back to like the mid noughties downhill racing and just go and watch like Sam Hill at his downhill peak uh, in the flesh. Because I never got to see that. I think that's yeah. rad. I think I might say the same, except I would go a little farther back. I would go watch Nico. I think that'd be something to see. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't go to Kamikaze. That always seems scary. Pointers. <laughs> yeah. I'd show him, show him what's up. I mean, if I could teach Nino things, I'll teach Nico things. That's right. <laughs> it's my annual every podcast mentioning Nino. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Scott with two S's and three T's says, topic idea, uh, is there an East Coast design bikes versus Rockies versus Pacific Northwest or even UK and Europe? Do we have regions, countries versus countries? Absolutely. I yeah. think it's more terrain, but I do feel like some people think their terrain is very different than the rest of the world when it actually isn't. Like. I've ridden in a lot of places and, you know, there is that like, I'm from the East Coast, I need this special bike or I'm from England, I need a special bike. You don't it's really, but it is more. One here. <laughs> yeah. 
steals one gear and a lot of shiny components. Uh Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Anodized like a Christmas tree. Built in a garage, yeah. But I do think it is more the terrain, like a hill is a hill wherever, and the steepness of it is the steepness wherever. So it's kind of more for what your rides are like, and that's how a bike is designed for. So you will see bikes that work well in their particular region if that company's based there because that's where they're riding. But I don't think, like off the top of my head, there's no like, this is the beast of the east. It has a high bottom bracket for riding over logs in Connecticut, but... There have I mean, that is the, the argument all the time is that, you know, the, the West Coast, um, especially like mountain, mountain, mountain bike meccas over here, what works here maybe doesn't work that well on the East. And I understand yeah. that. But it but does, I, though. Yeah. If you're on the similar kind of trail, it just depends what kind of riding you're doing. Not like just because I, if you ride on the North Shore, you could still take that bike and go ride in Massachusetts and be fine. You know. So is there a, is there a type of bike or maybe, maybe a, a bike model that you could think of that like... You know, this trail bike, this is going to work. Well, let's talk about that trail bike, that new common sale trail bike that you're riding. Mm -hmm. I mean, in BC, you know, I said it wasn't a trail bike. It's not a trail bike. But there are a lot of places in BC where that thing, you know, the trails are rowdy enough. It kind of is a trail bike. But on the East Coast or other places, that might not be a trail bike. Well, it could be. But even like in this state of Washington where I live, like it might be not a trail bike if you live on the eastern side of the mountains where you have mellower trails, you know, so it's really terrain like. Yeah. I could take that bike and go out to the East Coast to like Highland Bike Park and have a great time. But in like Spokane, East Coast. that's on the West Coast. It's not right. a trail bike for Spokane, you know, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, it just depends. Yeah, again, yeah. it's just kind of, I do get that there's a, you know, a regional, like, uh, what do you call it? You like the region you're from. Like, I'm from the East Coast, so I get, I understand how the East Coast, like, yeah, East Coast is way different and better, but I think the bikes are, can go wherever. You just pick the bike for your terrain, not for your state. Yeah. There, are bikes, or there are bikes where a certain characteristic just makes it a non-starter in a place like a bike with a super low BB just doesn't work in a place with tons and tons of rubble. Right? doesn't work is a little exaggeration. Okay. Though. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. People have to actually think about, think about how to turn their pedals. Pe- a, little more. a pedal, a pedal strike is always rider air. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but we're not seeing bikes designed specifically for the weird messed up switchbacks in Europe. I remember hearing in in design conversations like, oh no, we need to have a triple on these bikes because in Europe the grades are much steeper than in North America and having a double would just ruin everybody's rides. And that was wrong. I think one thing we've seen over the last bunch of years, the last five, even more years, is those like kind of BC edition bikes um, where... It is exactly that. They're tailoring a bike. They're calling it BC edition. It's tailored to like more technical rough trails here. But I mean, it's better suited to technical rough trails anywhere. Um, And I think the people, a lot of people in the UK are pretty good about this, about tinkering with the bike to make it suit their terrain better. You know, they love offset shock bushings and angle adjusting headsets and things like that, you know, and works for them. We need to make Taj. Taj should make a cartoon with like the bike for each country. Oh, that is pretty good. I've got him doing starter packs right now. Yeah, we could just do the bike. The next one he's got to do is a is a a mountain bike journalist technical editor starter pack. I'm already offended. Uh, You should be. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that'd be good. All right, guys. So at the start of this podcast, I asked you what your favorite bike shop was, uh, which leads us into the big discussion for this podcast: the future of bike shops. Things have been changing a lot over the last five years, 10 years even, as more and more of us are ordering stuff online. Um, 
but a lot of us came up through bike shops. A lot of people in the cycling industry, a lot of people listening, you've spent a ton of time in bike shops, whether that's working in a shop or just hanging out in a shop, asking questions, looking at new stuff. Uh, so Brian, what was your favorite bike shop? What did you say it was? I said Atomic here in Atomic Vancouver. In Vancouver. Yeah. Why is that your favorite bike shop? Because I like to talk to Steve. That's the only reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, for a lot of people, you go into a bike shop to talk stuff, right? To talk gear. Um, and you grow up in that sort of environment. That's how you learn, right, Casimir? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's where I I started hanging out in shops when I was a grom, like I don't know, 13 or 14, and eventually got a job right around then, just like crushing cardboard. And then soon you're part of a whole new world of bikes. Yeah. How much that, time did you spend in a shop, Kaz, working in a shop? I worked in shops for about 10 years total. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But same yeah, here. How many shops? A bunch of shops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did 10 years in the same shop. Shout out Pedal Sport in Chilliwack, small shop. <laughs> Dan Douglas. <laughs> Brian, how long did you spend in a shop? I think. 14 years in shops off and on um started at freedom in penticton and then went to school in in vancouver and worked at a couple different shops in vancouver and victoria over the years yeah Yeah. and then james you've never worked in a shop but you've obviously spent a ton of time in them as a consumer hanging out in shops yeah that's right yeah i think same as anyone really you know it's the sort of always or generally it's the hub of the local riding community and um meet for group rides there and and yeah just look at all the nice stuff everything like that yeah look at all the stuff when you're a young kid you're all look at all the fancy things that you're dreaming about exactly yeah Yeah. so kaz when you started in a shop your first shop job did you just did you have any qualifications did you go some people go to like ubi um what did you do no i didn't have anything like that like i said i was i think was 13 or 14 probably started officially working there like when i was around 15 this is pig iron sports in connecticut so don't it might still be around, but different owners and stuff at this point. But yeah, just kind of your local hole in the wall, but had a super strong riding community and they kind of just took me in. Um, I was just addicted to bikes right from the start. So they basically trained me. I got my training there from mm-hmm. the mechanics and, you know, they start you with the easy things like here, change a tire, or, like, like put this bike together and then they'll check it and just kind of worked my way up through there. So yeah. It was a good start. And after yeah. that, I moved to Colorado and got my real, I'd say like getting really dialed in was uh, the shop I worked at in Colorado. Yeah. If you were anything like me, it basically started off as a small kid going and pestering shop people and just hanging out there for hours and hours and hours and annoying the people that work there. And eventually you learn their names and you spend more time there. And I mean, I think I spent 10 years at the shop before I got a job at the shop, you know? Yeah, exactly. It just kind of becomes your spot. And like, I was a pretty quiet introverted kid is way different than i am now loud and outgoing but (laughs) (laughs) but somehow i don't know i just like i was so addicted to bikes and i started racing they had a really cool uh like they called the velo club but i could basically go out with these older guys and get schooled all the time like oh they're so fast like i need to figure this out and so i was full into xc racing and road biking and all that yeah working yeah so it was great we can't we can't not mention the discount which is I mean, especially at the time, that's like one oh, of yeah. the most important reasons to, to work there. Did you get a good discount? Yeah, I spent all my, I had a paper route too. Like I did a paper route for eight years all through, like through high school. So I took my paper route money and then I bought my first like actual good mountain bike. I got a spooky yeah. June bug. Yeah, yeah. 98, yeah. 99. That is, so. that is actually so sick. Yeah. You don't still great. have it, do you? No, I wish. I mean, oh. yeah, I sold it. So. What kind of, did you get stuff at wholesale? What was the deal there? Uh, yeah, probably. Or like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like wholesale plus 10% plus yeah. shipping. Yeah, plus 10. It ends yeah. up being like 40, 40% off or something. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
those are the benefits. But you're also making careful like $2 about those percentage hour. those percentage points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you end up making like two dollars an hour though, because your whole paycheck goes to bike parts, and then it, yeah. But you, nobody really gets rich working in bike shops. But that's not why you do it. No, no, you make a minimum wage, but you get to talk bikes all day, learn about things. I mean, when it's working well, that's what happens. Um, you know, I think a shop for sure there's money to be made in in retail if you own a shop or if you're if you are high up in a in a bigger shop there's some money to be made but it is also one of the problems with bike shops is that you know I'm my experience is similar to Kaz that like I never had any training it was it was learn on the fly and get made fun of a lot and you know it to be honest like it was a it was an amazing place for a 14 year old kid 15 year old kid to like work and learn about the real world. But it's also like definitely, you know, a pretty toxic environment uh, in some ways. And for sure, there's a, it's just there's all the a, chemicals. There's, That's just cause you're huffing like brake fluid <laughs> and stuff all day. It's not that toxic. You just hold your breath. What's right. toxic about a, what's toxic about a bike shop, Brian? I mean, it's just, it's not necessarily a professional, very professional workplace to like, you're not you don't go to a school for a profession and then get a get a good paycheck after with like graduated like oh hey like you know you can go from being junior mechanic to associate mechanic and you'll get 50 cent bump in this if you complete these qualifications of blah you know that i think that has happened more and more now but at the time is you know uh, the head mechanic Brent and uh, this guy named Tree, who's passed away, sadly one of one of my favorite people, who um, got hit by a car. Um, but you know, it was those guys just like talking shit and making Simpsons references all day, every day for all of my formative years, and that's awesome. But it's not necessarily super that sounds, pro. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, see, I think toxic is too strong of a word. It's a yeah. different. It's a it's a way mm-hmm. of like a. A, ne- a Peter Pan syndrome thing where you can work in a bike shop and never grow up, which I think is totally fine. Cause there are dudes that I've worked with that, you know, they're 50 years old and they still have yeah. the same job at the that bike shop. That sounds fucking like, great. Yeah. There's nothing like, I not saying there's anything wrong with that. So I don't think, I mean, I mean there are probably some toxic shops. Oh, I have sure. definitely had experiences, you know, with crappy bosses and just yeah. things like that. But I think the overall vibe, if you're at a good shop, that's why you're there because it does make you belong. It's like a little family. If it's working well, like any family it can take a turn for the worse. And then you got, crazy things happen but we have those stories too <laughs> we'll get into that oh no shit <laughs> oh casimir you've got some stories yeah imagine that <laughs> i think uh brian one of the things you said there about it being toxic it i think what i would say is that a lot of times it feels unprofessional and there's good and bad to that the bad is that no no it is unprofessional yeah. <laughs> it doesn't just feel unprofessional i i was a mechanic for over a decade, and I was professional every single day. Oh, I, I believe what changed. <laughs> I've got <a> downhill <laughs> sense. But when when you're not treated like a professional, you don't act like a professional, and then people they don't ever. They're you're never going to get the respect that a professional gets, and I don't know if that will ever change for bike shops. To be honest, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say here that like I would say my position on bike shop stuff is probably different from Kaz's, especially where I'm, I think that they do have to change. I think there's something wrong with a lot of shops today. I think that shop culture needs to evolve and change and improve. So we're coming at this from different places. I loved my time there. I think, you know, it was valuable. I learned a ton, but I also think that 
um, shops have a long way to go. In in 2020, they have to, as the like traditional mountain bike bro thing. Like we are that demographic, yep. and I think for people not in that def- demographic, bike shops fucking suck. Yeah. Hey, I've been doing this a long time, and like I said, worked at a shop for a decade before this. You know, I've been in this industry for 20 something years now, and. I'm not a real big fan of going into shops, to be honest. A lot of times I get attitude and and people don't want to look up from whatever video game they're playing or their own bike that they're working on. And I could completely understand why a new rider or somebody who doesn't have the confidence might not want to go into a shop because they don't know what they need and they got some jackass behind the counter with a fucking attitude. Like, yeah, 100% and that has to stop. Crazy, and that's a crazy place to be, like where the person that is selling you the thing is an active barrier to you buying the thing. Mm-hmm. It's the only other industry I can think of where it's really that bad is car sales. Like yeah. I would have paid more money for my car if I could have not involved the dealership. It yeah. was just such a shit the, experience. The shop rat has the conch. He has yeah. the power. Yeah. A little bit of power is a dangerous thing. That's what they mm-hmm. think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's why you have to kind of like shop around your shop too. Obviously not all shops are equal and I've definitely been in the shops even, you know, recently you go in and they kind of just treat you like you don't know anything. Like, I feel like I know a few things about bikes. So like I have might ever, know what part I need. Like, have you ever pulled the, do you know who I am? No, I don't pull that. But I think <laughs> in my head sometimes I'm like, really? Like, all right, well, you might feel silly when you're calling me out on something that like, I don't, you know, like I don't know everything obviously, but like I'm pretty educated about bikes. Like, yeah. I was going to say, I do sometimes wear a pink bike t-shirt and I think it's noticeable, like the difference in how they treat you sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kazmer, how do you think your bike shop experience has helped your job as a tech editor? Uh, I think it's been a big help, not as necessarily for reviewing the bikes. That kind of was something, a learned thing, but I think just knowing how to work on them and how to fix things, assemble things, make sure all that's correct. So it's, you know, a bike comes, we get our bikes not built up. So I build it up and I can be confident that you know, handlebars aren't going to fall off or my, the brakes will be bled correctly, all that. So I think that's a huge thing just to know how things work before you review them. It's yeah. Probably shortens the learning curve for being a tech editor. Yeah. I think that real world experience, knowing that like, okay, the derailleur smashes onto a rock and breaks apart and knowing right away, like, okay, like I've seen this before, you know, the derailleur, they're, they're light and they're meant to do this and that and that they're not meant to smash on a rock. So it's okay that this thing is destroyed. You know, you realize that. Yeah. I think, isn't there the saying of like, uh, mechanics make ter- good mechanics make terrible racers because they care about the bike, you know, they, they're thinking about the bike rather than just like smashing straight through. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that could be the counterpoint. If you never worked at a shop and just started reviewing bikes, you might just start smashing through things maybe, but if you didn't care oh, about sure. parts, but, um, but yeah, this way, at least if I break something, there's a, a decent chance I could fix it or know why it broke. But yeah, I, I just like having a nice kind of technical know-how base behind me to draw. Yeah, I feel like you guys also, you guys also, when you're reviewing stuff because of working in a shop, you understand that it's going to get used beyond, you know, might get installed by somebody who doesn't understand what they're doing, or it might get, you know, it has to survive things it wasn't intended for. You know, it's just like you can generalize yeah. the, the public experience a bit more effectively than if you're just reviewing something that's just yours and you've never had to you've never worked on people's stuff that wasn't you yeah i still go to shops too and just kind of chat with the guys there because they're the ones that really have even more knowledge of what's happening than i do as far as like if they've seen this derailleur fall apart or this fork blow up or anything like that so i kind of try to get a little gauge from the mechanics because those are the guys that see so much stuff comes in there where i might have only been on you know one our sample size is small so i do try to see every once in a while if i run an issue be like hey you guys seen this before 
Yeah. And being comfortable enough to work on the bikes, not just build them, but to, to work on them, to do something like you know, take a dropper seat post that's not working, take it apart and you find out why it's working on your own. You don't need to say, hey, you know, Joe at this company, why is this broken? Why is this not working? You figure it, figure it out yourself um, or something, you know, like brake calipers. Um, you know that, you know, this brake caliper, it's hard to get you know, some SRAM four-piston brake calipers, it's hard to reach through and get that five millimeter mounting bolt uh, with certain Allen keys because the bend hits the caliper right there. And that's a little thing, but someone who's installed 750 different brake calipers, they're going to realize that right away. It gives you some perspective. We should, I want to I hear about your guys' best shop stories. Let's get into some stories. Well, uh, yeah. There's so many. One time I got punched by a homeless guy. Okay. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I was closing up a shop one night and it was like the shop had two floors, like upstairs and downstairs. And the lower level had a, a door that went out, um, just a back door. We'd take out the, the trash and you know bring the bikes in. We had rental bikes out back. So I was bringing the rental bikes in. I go to grab the last rental bike and I'm bringing it in. And this dude walks in, like obviously, you know, homeless or um and so he he sees me. I'm like, hey man, sorry, we're closed. And he's just like, I just gotta go through. Like, let me go through. And I was like, no, you, you can't come in. We're closing. And then so he just sees me, and he's like, kind of like walking through. So like, all right, well, follow me. You can go out the front door. Just to let him upstairs and out the front, just to like minimize any issues. And so I get him out the front door, and he turns around, and he's just like, and he just punches me in the chest, like not super hard because I took a step back, and then he just like stumbled away. So I'm like, well, okay, that's another day at the bike shop. But. <laughs> Yeah. When you're uh, when you're working in the bike shop all the time, the one thing that you realize is that a lot of times people that can't drive for maybe medical reasons, uh, maybe money, maybe things aren't right upstairs, they're getting around by bike. So a lot of the people that we deal with are, let's call them disadvantaged people, <laughs> challenged people. Um, some characters. There's some good characters. There. There's some good characters. So we had one guy, Edwin. I'm. He was an older man. This was 15 years ago. I'm sure he's passed now. Uh, Edwin was a strange cookie. He would go into the washroom at 5.58. We closed at 6. And he would start washing his hands. He would wash his hands till mm, 6.30 or so, right around there. <laughs> I hate to break this to you. I don't know if he was washing his hands, lady. <laughs> well, let's just say the Have faucet... I just ruined your childhood? <laughs> the faucet was on, and that's what we would refer to it as washing his hands. And he would come out of there so happy afterwards, and he would leave and... Yeah. Anyways, that's my... That's one of many bike shop stories. Yeah. I also got punched in the face trying to return a, a recover a stolen bike, which I did get back. Um all sorts of stuff, people stealing things and you catching them. And uh, we had time traveler as well. I don't know his name, but he had that helmet with the, the face mask that folded down and covered your entire face. And it was mirrored. Like an arrow helmet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, it wasn't arrow in the back. It was round and it had like a full face mask on the front, like a riot mask kind of. It's like a Daft Punk or something. Yeah, 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 like that. <laughs> and he rode a recumbent and he wore the same like light blue button up silk shirt and jeans and i like i got the unabomber vibe out of him and uh yeah i don't know he's just characters lots of characters yeah yeah we had the, the recumbent crew they're always special like there's we had spider-man he had a recumbent and had a little spider-man figurine on it yeah it just always wanted very obscure parts and wanted to talk and things were never right with his bike yep yeah i i miss i honestly miss 
working with all those people and interacting with them. Like, obviously there was days where you would just get like so frustrated, you know, but all these different people, you'd see a hundred different people every day and they'd have a hundred different problems. And I miss those days. I miss those bike shop days, man. Those were good. Yeah, that's good. And plus, I do like the people that would roll through. They have stories like they're on a big bike journey. Like this yeah. one dude came by one day that he'd ridden from South America and he was making his way up to Alaska, you know, and that guy, the bike is totally clapped out. It smells really bad, but the stories they have are so good. Yeah. Casimir, how many bikes did you get in that had, they were on a bike rack and the, one of the wheels was dragging on the ground for like 300 kilometers? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because we had like when I worked in Colorado, we had a lot of the bike tours that would come through because they do like the tour divide or, or the you know parts of that. So their bikes were crazy, like, so heavy. You have to lift on the stand, and, and they'd be like, "Oh, let me unload those bags Aero off bars. there." Just like, yeah, it's, just, it's nuts. Casimir, well, what would you say was the hardest part of the job? I mean, a lot of times it could be coworkers. I feel like <laughs> like I've had some like and bosses. I've had some crappy bosses that just don't appreciate like how how hard the employees are working. I've worked with some great people, but sometimes I've had a couple bosses that are just like not good at respecting their employees and then i've had coworkers too they're just don't do work or just slack off or you know it's just kind of like with any job you just have to get along with people but yeah that's probably the most challenging customers can be challenging but in a good environment at least you can kind of vent about that to your coworkers once they leave brian when you were at the shops what was the hardest part of the job for you i mean i i liked working at shops um i think the hardest part of the job for me was not wanting to do it forever and and but also wanting to kind of yeah well yeah i really enjoyed the people i worked with in pretty much all the all the shops i worked at um for the most part a uh, couple occasionally you know like any job there's struggles but yeah. yeah i i had generally good bosses um and generally great coworkers. and yeah i mean your guys's time traveler reminded me of we had a guy called terry the we terry the wheelie king Shout out Terry, if you're listening, I really doubt you are. Um, but he uh, he was he was an interesting uh, interesting dude on kind of on the fringes kind of guy, and he didn't have really any money, but he was obsessed with his. He had a Da Vinci Hectic or Frantic, I don't know, one of those, and he only wheelied, like literally only wheelied, and I you like would him. see him riding around Penticton, like he never took his mountain bike off road. He just wheelied to and from, from Penticton to Summerland. So that's like, I don't know, like a 20 minute drive. So I don't know how far that was, but yeah. He, he wheelied for an hour and a half. That's like oh, a, yeah. that's a but long he lived ride. In, he lived in, I think he lived in Summerland and he would wheelie his way to Penticton and then wheelie his way back. And he only wheelied, you'd see him on the side of the road wheelieing and he would come in and he'd be like, guys, I, uh, oh, I think maybe like the bearings in my rear wheel are gone. And it's like, dude, you only got that bike like two months ago there's no way like and no he could tell his when his bearing yeah and he would wear out his rear bearings before his front even were worn in like yeah yeah he uh he was interesting i've got some other stories about terry i'll tell you another time i think for me the hardest part of the job kaz i'd have to agree with you is working with some other people like for me i was at the same shop for more than 10 years and i loved the bike shop uh my boss dan douglas taught me so much he like life-changing guy but when you take it i know you guys are going to be you guys aren't going to believe me here but i did take it seriously like i wanted the nice stuff that i was working on and the shitty stuff i was working on to work well you know i like working with my hands and the hardest part for me was getting you know the summer employee that you're not keeping for very long that doesn't care 
and he doesn't know the stuff and doesn't really want to learn the stuff. And you have to make sure that the bike he worked on, the handlebars aren't going to fall off, you know, that kind of thing. And that brings us back to that problem for bike shops to get better. They need to have people in there that respect the job and get respect and get treated with respect by their employers and paid like that too. I'm going to go back and say that the best part of, of you asked about what the best part of working in a shop was. I'd say it was big, like really rad project bikes or shit to gold projects mm-hmm. were the two, are the two best things. Like one is like when somebody comes in with like a really interesting project build that they want to do and you can help them figure out what the problem is that they're trying to solve for themselves and make it happen mm-hmm. um, or, or a res- restoration, something people want to pay for it. They're okay paying. And it's like, Hey, I just want this thing to be amazing again. Yeah. 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 I love those shit to go. Yeah. I think for me would be like the, the repairs that you probably shouldn't do it. Like probably not worthwhile. So my boss, Dan, he, this guy would be like the most shops, a bike comes in, it's got an STI, like a road bike shifter that's all trashed inside. You just, you just get rid of it. You just get a new one because they're made of 6,000 tiny little pieces. We would spend all day taking it apart and learning about it and all this stuff and like putting it back together. And that, that was awesome. That was You're my favorite. He wasn't very profitable. <laughs> well, he had that shop. He just sold it a couple of years ago. He had it for 20 something years. So he did pretty well, I think. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, what about these days? So obviously we're all working at Pink Bike. Casimir, you've been here for almost, have you been here for 10 years now? No, it's like eight years. Eight yeah, years. Eight, okay. I think. Casimir, you, do you go to a bike shop these days? You must. Do you need parts yeah. every now and then? You need brake yeah, parts? Yeah, exactly. I go to two shops here in town. I go to Fanatic and I go to Alicat. Those are kind of my go-tos because they usually have what I need. But I don't like I don't get any service done there typically. I, I don't think I have it all ever. But, you, are you ever, you're ever tempted? You just be like, ah, just somebody else can deal with this problem today. No, not really. I mean, I can deal with most problems besides like I don't have a nitrogen charger for a shock or things like that. So maybe like full suspension service. If I needed something like super extensive, I could go have those guys help me out with that but uh Most otherwise i send it away nowadays anyway which yeah, is part exactly. of the problem yeah but those guys at Alicat is cool they can do a full like they can pull apart a fox and they have all this stuff so um sometimes i was, that, I was but, tempted to drop off my gravel bike and just have somebody else deal with the brake bleed because i was struggling and then i had a stern talk to myself and just <laughs> dealt with it <laughs> yeah no luckily i could do most things but yeah i do just like having it close by and little parts you know i'll be building a bike or realize i'm short on some part rather than ordering it online i could just go to a shop and get it I'm because the shop's literally like two blocks away so yeah what about you james as someone who didn't grow up in a shop or didn't work in a shop yeah what's it like going to say, a shop uh, these days i'm i'm the complete opposite really i i buy pretty much most things online and then only really go to the shop for service stuff um because i potentially don't have that that full range of knowledge and i certainly don't have all the tools or a place to work on my bike so yeah for me they're 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 sort of really important for that as opposed to a place to pick up products james so when you buy something online and you mm-hmm. take it to a shop to get it put on have you ever mm-hmm. had have you ever felt any heat any attitude like you bought this online and now you want us to put it on have you ever felt any attitude from shops uh i haven't personally um i think if i got that i'd just go to the shop <laughs> that would be my solution i like i hear stories as i'm sure you have of, of that but i've i've personally kind of never experienced it and yeah it seems like cutting your nose off to spite your face like I, yeah I, I i don't understand where that comes from really i was told to not work on 
some people or not give service to some people's stuff early on when online was just starting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that like and I think, 10 I think years we ago? Did refuse service. No, long, long, like 15, 15, 18 years ago. It's like, I remember that I'm same a, sentiment in bike shops, mm-hmm. you know, we would do it, but I remember my boss mentioning like, uh, you know, and those were the early days of this online stuff. Yeah. But there was a lot more fear then of that it would really fully take over and the shops would like go out of business immediately, you know, cause there would be the guy coming in just as pile of parts, like, Hey, can you put this together? I just bought online. You do kind of cringe a bit like, all right, well, let's see. And hopefully he got the right stuff and all that. But these days I feel like it's a better. Don't you see that as an opportunity now? It's like, if you're not, if you're upset about providing the service that you have people pay you for, then maybe you're just not charging enough. No, I think that part of it is because they could have bought those from you. Like I get it's different, a little bit different now because it's really acceptable to buy everything online, you know, like especially now that people have been locked in their homes for three months, everyone buys everything. But, you know, 10 years ago, online shopping was still not what it is now. And so I think as these brick and mortar stores, there was more fear by now, they obviously people realize that customers are going to buy things online and bring them in. Probably, I can definitely see the frustration where a customer comes in, tries something in the shop, like tries like a bike fit or something, and then mm-hmm. goes and buys it online because that feels like they're they're taking advantage of the service. But the other way around, where they've already bought and and they want a service out of you, I think that's a bit different. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, without getting too crazy deep, if you were to open a bike shop next year, how do you see it? being organized do you see it being a service only shop do you see yourself having a showroom floor and and bikes how would you do it if i was going to open a bike shop like a brick and mortar one i don't i think i would probably not order open a brick and mortar bike shop i think i would order (laughs) but let's pretend you're making a mistake (laughs) either an online retailer or some other type of business Uh, if i was going to do a brick and mortar i would do a service heavy one uh with a with a demo and build program Uh, i'd only work with a two or three two or three brands i don't think i'd i don't think i would rely on the the value any value bike stuff just because like i don't as a shop i'm not adding value in that value chain to some you know to somebody who's buying a three thousand dollar bike i don't think that i i can add value why not well you don't think you could add value by educating them and getting them into the sport kind of thing like um, no, I mean if they've if they're coming in already, they're already into the sport. You're not you're not the first touch point. The first touch point for those folks, somebody coming in to buy their first two thousand dollar mountain bike is not the shop. The first touch point is the media they saw online of some of a Danny McCaskill video or something. You know? Yeah, like but why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't you care? So you're just gonna be like a super highfalutin like dream builder? No, I wouldn't be. Mm, I would probably do a demo program with a, with a medium high end it's not that i don't think that there's value in doing other stuff i just don't see that i would add that much value so i would focus on i would focus on medium to high end builds and i would focus on service personally it's it's where i think i personally could add the most value with a small team and i think it's where where there might be a bit of a um gap in the marketplace Mm -hmm. i don't it's not necessarily that i think that everything else is wrong I think that I would follow your lead in most ways. Like it'd be a service-heavy shop. It would be demo that, or rental, that kind of stuff. But I mean, uh, you get your margins from your low-end to your mid-end stuff. Um, and so I think that's what I would focus on personally. I just don't think you can count on that in the long term. I don't think that, I don't think that 
that the margins that people are currently pulling on fifteen hundred dollar mm-hmm. to twenty five hundred dollar bikes uh, are going to be available, which are ideally for everybody listening that hasn't worked at a bike shop are around like 30, 35 points. 35%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's you want and it, that's on the cheaper bikes. You get yeah. less margin the, on the higher the, end bikes. The fancier bikes, the bikes, your margin is way smaller uh, because obviously your people want more money off them, but they also take way more time to build and sell. And that's... And the expectations are much higher. Yeah. And that's all time that you have to pay for. So, you know, you don't make a ton of money off those fancy bikes unless you sell a lot of them, uh, but you do get... I mean, a high-end shop, you get that clout for sure. Mm-hmm. I just, I would charge more for service and I don't, th- yeah, I just don't think you can count on the $2,500 bike turnover long-term the way, the way that it's, ha- it's been happening, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I expect that it will continue to get easier and the barriers to buying a $2,500 common saw will get lower and lower and lower in the next 10 years. Bike fit will get better. Online communication will get better. Being able to figure out, like if I could have bought my car online, I would have bought my car online, you know? Yeah, I think mountain bikers still want to go into shops and talk to people. I think for sure, 100%, I agree that there's way more online stuff. Of course, you know, that goes without saying. But I think for... A lot of people, they want to go in and talk to a face that's ridden a lot of bikes and they want to sit on a bike and feel the brake levers maybe, you know, that kind of stuff. I have a cool, um, I, I did a uh, from the top interview with um, with the guys from bikecomponents.de, the German, they're a online retailer in Germany. And what's interesting about them is that they are essentially a shop with a shop vibe, but they sell online. So the the whole interaction of like growing down and, and chatting with folks and stuff still happens. Like you call those guys up and it's not like how many of them do you want or whatever. It's like they have essentially a call center of bike shop employees to talk shit, learn, listen, hear about what it, what it is a customer is actually trying to do. Cause they, they do builds mostly. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, high-end sales or medium to high-end sales but it is essentially the traditional shop experience but via what we're doing right now you know just yeah see i don't like that i mean it, it's good that it exists that that vibe is there but i do think like the brick and mortar it's gonna it has a place if you can do it right like totally. you, you know like it is nice to go into a shop and look at stuff and touch things just like you go to the apple store or some computer store or something like all those things are available online but if and like i do like the you know, the tactile feel and check it out and just talking to people that like bikes. Do you guys remember concept stores? Like the giant concept <laughs> yeah. store, mm-hmm. Trek concept store, whatever happens. We have one here in town. They are, they, are they still sticking there's around? More. They, there's, there's more than ever, I would say, because the small shops kind of have trouble surviving. So the big companies kind of come in like, yeah, let's make this a concept store. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting one. I know that uh, quite a few of the big brands have been targeting in trouble bike shops or shops that have gotten behind in their payments, that kind of thing, and have gone and have scooped them up as concept stores. And I think it does a good job of representing those big brands for sure. I don't like, I still feel like the future is more in, in direct and in like having, you know, in Squamish, there's a, there's a demo center for, you know, whatever your direct, you know, Mm -hmm. YT or comments all or whatever. Like you've got a, You've got a demo center here. You've got a demo center in 
whatever in, in Kelowna and you've got one in Kamloops or something, you know, and then people go try and then still buy online. And that the overhead for that is much lower than a, a full shop. Yeah. So we've got three decades, right around three decades of shop experience between us. Brian, how would you make shops better? Give me, I mean, give me three me the, points. How are you going to make your thing. bike shop better? Brian's bikes. It's okay. opening next week. And then it closes the week out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All better. Yeah. Give me three would, reasons why Brian's bikes is better than Mike's bikes. Uh, alliteration yeah. is better than uh, <laughs> assonance. Yeah. No, I, I, there'd be absolutely no shop dude. Shop dude is the worst. Like that cocky attitude guy behind the counter, you know, reads pink bikes so thinks he knows everything. You know, that that vibe i'm i know him very well <laughs> <laughs> so there would be no there would no be no cocky shop rat guy for sure um i can't Im, i can't imagine how if you get attitude kaz walking into a shop or i get attitude walking into a shop um or feel um, you know i i'll go into a shop and sometimes feel like oh i'm not sure i'm welcome you know i can't imagine how difficult that is for somebody who isn't uh, upper middle class white dude who knows everything about bikes, you know. So I would, yeah, I'd work to eradicate that for sure. I'd probably make a rule that you can't, you can't suggest selling anything for at least five minutes into the conversation. Like you actually have to listen to what the customer wants first. The like being told this is. I know that you have to turn over fast. You have to turn over product sales fast, and time is money. Like. You know, I've worked at shops where it was like, you, you have to have a 10 minute interactions on average. You have to keep your interactions under 10 minutes. And you know what? That's fair. Time is money. But the first five minutes of that 10 minute interaction need to be listening um, before selling. Unless and you then, can tell they're wrong right away. Then you need to tell them. What and then you just right give thing. them attitude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you just give them crappy attitude. No, it's, you still need to listen and figure out what, why they're wrong. Like what, what is it? big picture that's leading them down the wrong thing right like it's not just it's not just i'm not talking about somebody who's trying to mix and match the wrong derailleur parts here or whatever you know so your overarching sort of thing here is just to be more welcoming to lose the attitude um you want people and just don't, to come i wouldn't count on and i wouldn't count on i wouldn't count on uh traditional high margin sales i just don't think i yeah. would yeah. that's why my um, shop would sell donuts I, and pies a nice. Okay, you might have Kaz me there. Kaz is going down the right trail here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what happens then, Kaz? You get you it's do just that, a bakery, and then you <laughs> yeah, get you get stools or you get a couch, and then the problem is you get a bunch of jackass people hanging out there, annoying and distracting your mechanics that are supposed to be working. No, I have one mechanic that's up in the front, like the forward fronting, forward facing mechanic, and then the rest of the mechanics are out of view of the public, and they can just mm -hmm. wrench all day. Yeah, I think that's an important one. Having the the mechanics downstairs or in the back or something key. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that one shop I worked at. We were downstairs, and it was, and they even had a separate. There was like the guy that checked bikes in, and then we could be in the back just wrenching, and nobody bothered us. Oh, that's, that's how Oak Bay job. So that's good. how Oak Bay does it in Victoria. That I worked there for a while, and it was perfect. Like they had a, they had a, a sort of all the mechanicing was downstairs, and you went down, and there was I think they took shifts on who would be the front facing guy for the day, and 
and you would get your stuff checked in. That was yeah, great. That's what that's, you do. And you have a guy that does the quick repairs, like flat fixes and spoke fixes or whatever, and then the rest does the other stuff. If there are any bike shops out there that need somebody disgruntled just to like work in the basement fixing bikes and never want them to see anybody, just send me a message. You never know. <laughs> I think for me, a big one would be... Levy knows his days are numbered. Yeah. <laughs> My bosses are giving me the eye. Uh, would be wages. I would want... I want somebody there who's going to stay there, who wants to be there, who wants to learn the things, who wants to know how to take the fork apart. I don't care that the fork's not supposed to come apart. I want my mechanic to be able to take it apart, know how to do it, and put it back together and want to do it. And that comes with respect and wages. You want somebody who's going to stay there for 10, 15 years who might buy the shop from you. Um, I guess somebody who cares. I just want somebody who cares that's in there. I love that. That's a great point. I think a path to progress as an employee. So, you know, nobody, Hashtag people are just like, I work at a, say what? Hashtag path to progress. That's the name of my charity actually, guys. <laughs> Can you donate, please? No, but like knowing that you can one day, like there's a role as the purchaser or a role as the yeah. shop manager. And then from shop manager, you can, you can still progress beyond these things and, there's a yeah. career here versus just there's like, no shame. This is a thing. Yeah, this is a thing I do between other things. Yeah, this is this is this is my job between semesters. I don't want it to be like that. I want kids yeah. to want to be a mechanic. I want kids to want to know how to rebuild that derailleur instead of just throwing it in the garbage. But there, we don't have that, and I don't think we will have that until it changes quite a bit. You know, right now, if you're 20, you work in a bike shop, that's okay. You're 30, you work in a bike shop. People think there's something wrong with it. And I don't agree with that. No. So I guess what I'm saying is I'll pay the mechanics way more. Yep. And I'm just going to have, I'm not going to be focusing on the front end. Uh, I'm going to charge more for it too on the mechanic side. Mm -hmm. um, there's a shop in town here called Mighty Riders. I don't know if you guys heard of it, but it's pretty similar to the to the model i'm talking about they only do it's mostly road and and touring bikes and stuff but they don't do a lot of complete sales almost none almost all of them you can come in and if you're going to buy a bike from them you have to start with a fit and you pay for the fit and then they refund you the cost of the fit if you buy a bike hmm. uh, and I, I think that's a really cool approach my shop's gonna have food It'll be like it'll be separate, so there's like distance between the food and the wrenching. But then it's gonna be a good hangout place. There's gonna be loud music, and it's gonna be a scene, and it's not gonna be so. No one, no new riders are coming into your shop. No, that's what you've donuts. just described to me. They're gonna buy donuts. They don't want to come into your hole. shop, Kaz, because you're playing stupid Rise Against really loud, and <laughs> all <laughs> your broskies <laughs> are working behind the counter drinking Monster and like. No, yeah. I'm, I'm they're drinking guy. pretentious IPAs. Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't drink. We don't drink. It's a straight edge shop. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> this is getting worse like than hardcore. worse. Yeah, no, you were, you were so good. It was almost there. Whether you had me in with baked goods, and then all of a sudden it's a straight edge shop. Yeah, we can have donuts. And it's a straight edge donut shop that also sells bikes. It's oh, gonna be God. pretty good. I'm out. Well, bagels you started strong. Like I'm that. coming, but only for the donuts. I will do drugs in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine <laughs> all right and on that yeah, note, everybody in my shop too oh concert live music in my shop yeah <laughs> i <laughs> admire your business plan casimir i don't think it's going to be successful but it's a business plan after my own heart <laughs> yeah it's gonna be not pretentious at all the opposite of pretentious <laughs> okay so before we wrap this up let's get to the big question here casimir 
Should we be supporting local bike shops? I think the answer is obvious maybe, but you might have more to say about that. Yeah, I fully agree that we should. I think bike shops are important. Their role as just being, you know, selling complete bikes has changed a bit, as we know with the the internet. But I think a, a good shop can support its local community and can kind of become that hub where people go for information about trails. They can, you know, support trail days. And it becomes that place where people can hang out, learn more, get introduced to the sport, and then ideally they'll purchase things from the shop. But I think that they just have to have the right attitude. The people that work there have to have a good attitude. Um, but I do think that that shop is an important and kind of your local scene. You know, a local scene, all the people have to gather somewhere. And if that shop can be the place, I think that's a really a good thing. Yeah, I'd add to that, like, especially given the current situation, like there's been queues outside my local bike shop pretty much every day since it reopened. Um, and, you know, it's not just kind of mountain bikers, they support their inner city. So um, commuters and families and things like that. And I think they're the people who would potentially suffer most if the bike shop went people who maybe don't even know how to fix a puncture so if they get a puncture they just simply can't ride anymore things like that you know yeah those people that i was talking about earlier that can't drive that their bike is their way to get around they depend on the bike shops Uh, so they're not just hubs for for us they're not just important places for us to go but for a lot of people that they don't want a mountain bike this is a bike shop is a super important place and yeah support them yeah. And they can also be a spot for, you know, like a race scene or something too, like mm-hmm. shops that have clubs, whether it's to get kids into the sport, um, just anybody to kind of grow the sport that way it can be the spot where that takes place. You know, they can just sponsor a local race team or a local riding club, you know, get middle school kids out on bikes, that type of thing. Um, I think having shops involved with that is a way that they can kind of stay relevant and, you know, be important. Yeah. I think the question isn't like, do we need to support local bike shops? It's what can local bike shops do to support the the area, the, the community, etc., and everything else kind of flows naturally from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just stay involved. Like they can't just stand on their own, just as you know. Brian, they don't deserve like, to exist just because they've always existed. For sure, yeah, they don't. They just have to so. kind of you know make themselves relevant. And I think there's lots of ways to do it. it. Just takes a little bit more work these days with the internet. All right, so that wraps up episode 12 today, the Pink Bike Podcast, talking about bike shops. I think I'm going to go to my own shop. I got a suite set up in my garage with a lot of wrenches and I'm going to go spin some of those wrenches today. Uh, You guys, when you guys order a part, when you need a component, do you go to a bike shop or do you open up the computer and look online? Let us know in the comments which way you guys look at that. Have a good one. We'll see you next episode.